The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What's coming down the M&A pipeline? Listen as our columnists dish out some of their top corporate finance predictions for 2022. Welcome to the Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Manhattan. It's that time of year when our columnists stick their necks out and give their predictions and prescriptions for the coming year. This year's book, A World in Transition, is full of intriguing ideas about what lies ahead in corporate finance. Sure, not all these ideas will pan out. We're not fortune tellers, but we do like to think big and originally about money. First up, I chat with our global deals editor, Lauren Silva Laughlin, about her contention that the great resignation, as it's called, will spread further into the C-suite with more CEOs likely to jump ship in 2022. One reason, it's not much fun running large organizations via Zoom and team calls, that's for sure. Lauren also thinks M&A practitioners will need to focus on doing more, smaller deals rather than fewer big ones, largely because of increasing antitrust scrutiny. This, she says, will benefit boutiques like Houlihan Loki and Molas. Meantime, bankers in 2021 had their biggest year arranging mergers, sales, and spinoffs for companies trying to prepare for climate change. But most of those deals have been either defensive, with giants like BHP hiving off carbon-heavy divisions, or their capital-raising exercises by the back door, otherwise known as SPACs. The next wave of green M&A will be far more about new opportunities rather than managing risk, Anthony Curry in Melbourne argues. Finally, Amy Donnellan tells Ed Cropley that Big Pharma will need to tool up in the data arms race in 2022. Drug giants like AstraZeneca and Pfizer are pouring $160 billion a year into unearthing new treatments. Artificial intelligence could provide a shortcut by helping discover new treatments and getting them to market sooner. That makes firms like Relay Therapeutics and Recursion Pharmaceuticals hot property, she says. Give a listen. Lauren, you've got a couple of pieces in this year's predictions book, the 2022 book. One of my favorites, actually. It says that the great CEO resignation invites the great agitation. Now, a lot of people have written about the great resignation and lots lots of people. Everyone seems to think millennials in particular are going to leave their jobs. But you actually make the point that CEO turnover has been high and will continue to be at elevated levels, which we can discuss first why. But second, what that means in terms of agitation, which is that it may make companies more vulnerable to activist, activist investor campaigns. First, let's start with why are they all quitting? Why, why, do they, why don't they love being masters of the CEO universe? <laughs> it's a lot less fun. No, like everybody is sick of their job apparently right now. And except you and me, <laughs> except you and me. Hey, I'm here to work. I'm loving this podcast. But, um... <laughs> But apparently that includes like people in the corner office too. And I had to say when Doug Parker of American Airlines said, you know, recently that he was stepping down, it just really crystallized the whole thing for me because he actually made it through like 9-11 and everything that happened afterwards and all these sort of crises. And then, you know, now it's just like, oh God, it's just gotten to be too much for everybody. The job of being a CEO is just not fun. You have uncertainty. And you have supply chain issues, you have workforce, labor issues, inflation. Like, these are all really complicated problems. Oh, and boo-hoo. This boo-hoo. Is I mean, they make more really money than hard ever, for the $20 million bonus. <laughs> well, they're also older than they've ever been. And they don't get to kind of walk around. They're not, you know, the little king of their kingdom. They don't get to walk around the office and get worshipped by everybody who works for them. And so, you know, a lot of people are calling it quits. I think that's a really good point. I mean, as someone who I manage 
manage 36 people, you know, for our little world. And I don't get to walk around and see anybody. And nobody worships me, I will say. (laughs) But no, but it is true. I mean, it's to a point of, of like nobody went to Harvard Business School or INSEAD, as you point out in your piece, and learned how to manage your workforce from your laptop. Nobody has knows how to deal with this. And they're probably only introducing some sort of management course somewhere at a business school today. So it's it's not even like that they, it's not that it's just not fun. They, I think a lot of them just don't know how to do it. No? Well, I think it's also gonna totally change the structure of how the corporation looks. Mm. And I agree with you completely. It's a great point. Like they don't know how to run those businesses. You know, I'm not sure anyone really does. You know, we're all struggling with it. All of us who have people that we you know, work with or who work for us, it's, it's, quite, it's quite fascinating. Okay, but th- so that we see that there's going to be this uh, high turnover rate of CEOs. Let's go to your point, which is of course, that this creates a certain amount of instability, which could be a good thing if you're a shareholder activist. Yes. So activists have been pretty kind of relatively quiet over the past year and a half or so since the pandemic really started. And part of it was that they did not want to look like they were agitating at companies that were like really suffering. Uh, But now we're at the point that we know that companies actually, a lot of them didn't do that bad. Earnings didn't suffer as much as people really thought. And now they're going to be sort of going into this period of massive uncertainty without an experienced person at the top, or maybe they're just going to be sort of in flux in terms of who's going to be running the business. And this is an opening for like all of the activists that have just been sitting around waiting for their next target to be vulnerable. Interesting. Okay, now you, the other piece you have is about M&A. You point out that that what we're going to see, now we've, we've just, 2021 has been a record year for mergers and acquisitions, and th- th- there will still be elevated levels of, of mergers and acquisitions, but you say that a lot of the big, big mega deals are gonna be difficult more and, and probably not gonna get through, in part because of antitrust and competition issues, and that you take this to the next server, which is, for step further, which is that that will benefit those M&A advisory firms and boutiques that work with smaller deals and and have a sort of, you know, they may have more deals, if not giant deals. And the funny the, the sort of conclusion is that this company, Houlihan Loki, uh, <laughs> which people are like, wait, who's that? But uh, <laughs> it, it's going to do better than, I don't know, say someone like even PJT Partners or Molus, maybe. Explain the thesis about M&A next in 2022. So like we all like to get really excited about, me included, like about big deals. You know, we see this like AT&T spinning off Time Warner and, you know, who's advising and like who's, you know, the masters of the universe, who's involved, whatever. And so I just kind of enjoy thinking about in 2020, it's the worker bees toiling away at Houlihan and Loki that are going to be the ones in like the best seat on Wall Street. Yeah, PJT run by Paul Taubman and Goldman and Lion Tree. You know, these are all really big, you know, great high profile investment banks run by investment bankers who've been in the business a very long time and have huge clients. And those clients are going to struggle to do deals in the next year because of, like you said, the regulatory environment. And it's going to be really difficult to give them advice that they can execute. So I think that they'll be kind of not doing a whole lot, but the the smaller companies 
will be doing a lot more deals. And so Hulihan Loki just kind of dug into the numbers a little bit in terms of like their average deal size, the number of people they have. And Mullis too actually sort of somewhat surprisingly works on more smaller deals. So I think in the next year, they're probably gonna benefit from the fact that smaller clients are gonna be more active. And that's not to say that you know, Goldman and PJT still do a ton of deals under $2 billion, but they're just going to be sort of not quite as well positioned, I guess is the best way to say it. Well, I think it's funny. And when you wrote the piece, I edited it and then I said, oh, let's look at the stock. We looked at the stock prices to create a graphic, which will be in the book. And it was quite funny. You could see that investors are indeed anticipating, if you will, that Hulahan Loki is going to be more resilient and their stock has, has outperformed uh, over the past year relative to some of those other names you mentioned. Yeah, I think the deal pipeline, too, because it's so long, it takes a long time for these deals to close. The numbers that we've seen this year are deals that have been announced, and there's tons of activity, but they're not going to get paid for those deals until those deals close, and that's like not till next year, and maybe some will get unwound and less will be announced. And so this might be sort of like a trailing kind of issue with earnings, I think. Yeah. Right? All right. Well, look, Lauren, thank you very much. Have thank a you. fantastic 2022. <laughs> you too. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong chatting long distance with Anthony Curry, um, who's in Melbourne, Australia right now, I believe. Uh, Anthony, how are you? Yeah, that's right. Down in Melbourne, doing very well, thanks. It's summer here, so um, there's a saving grace in that, at least. Yeah, well, it's winter in Hong Kong, which is basically summer everywhere else, so no complaints <laughs> here. Um, well, look, while we're talking about the climate, <laughs> uh, <laughs> might as well segue, segue into your, yeah, nice segue, huh? Um, so I, I was I was looking at your at your nice prediction about what we should expect next year about it, and I noticed one number. Um, you're quoting Refinitiv data that says climate-driven M&A uh, mergers and acquisitions came in at 164 billion dollars uh, this year uh, up yep. to the up to December. Um, that's a record high. Um, yes, it is. Yes. How uh, how impressed should we be by that number? Well, I mean. The problem with these numbers is um, it's all in the eye of the beholder, as with many things. So Refinitiv hasn't included some things I would have done and includes thing deals that I wouldn't have done. It's it's hard to precisely tell exactly how many of these kind of deals have been done. But the, the general theme behind it, I think, is is still valid, which is more and more companies are thinking about how they deal with climate in, in, in different ways, right? So yes, you can think, well, we need to sort out our risk and do something to make sure that we, you know, we're, we're not doing something stupid internally. We should assess you know, what our emissions are. We should assess that, make sure we're not in the, our factories are not in the line of fire, literally or figuratively speaking. Um, or you can think about deal making or setting up your units or whatever. So I think, you know, the fact that this is growing quite quickly is a good sign in general that companies are, um, thinking about how to address it. Big companies, small companies, publicly traded companies, mo for the most part, not always, of course. Um, but, you know, let's remember, it's a, what was I think that the figure is around $5 trillion of M&A this year globally. So, you know, there's a lot going on that isn't climate related, although not everything has to be climate related, obviously. In your article, you say one thing. Uh, you say there's been a dearth in genuinely environmentally useful tie-ups. Mm. Uh, what, what are you referring to there? Well, it's it's the type of deals done. So on the refinitive numbers, for example, um, a large swathe of deals done are special purpose acquisition companies buying uh, private companies. And, you know, fine, it's M&A, but it's basically um, 
it's basically capital raising by the back door. It's basically an IPO by the back door, right? So, um, and the two biggest ones they've got are for electric vehicle companies. And that's um, one of one uh, buying Polestar, which is the Geely Volvo uh, collaboration on electric vehicles. Uh, and the second one being Lucid um, uh, Motors. So, yeah, yes, those are going out and doing things that are meant to reduce emissions, but it's, it isn't a stretch to call it an M&A deal, but it's also really just a capital raising deal. So I kind of I'd rather exclude those from from the numbers. So, yes, they could. What about be what about the uh, Santos acquisition of oils? <laughs> yes. Well, Sa 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 Santos buying oil search luckily doesn't figure in at, at all in um, in the numbers that Refinitiv or others have done. Uh, but Santos okay. definitely likes to pitch it as as a deal that should be considered. Uh, so, I mean, the the um, chief executive, Kevin Gallagher, when the deal was struck a few months ago, said that it would help to, and I quote here, successfully navigate the transition to a lower, lower carbon future. What he's basically pitching there is, by doing this, we'll have more money coming in, so then eventually we can maybe go out and spend more money on carbon capture and storage, which is their main way they're thinking about um, getting rid of their emissions. That, that being, we'll go and drill the gas. It's mostly a gas company. We'll go and drill the gas uh, and we'll try and capture the emissions from drilling the gas, and we'll forget about the what are called the scope three emissions, which is when you go off and um, and uh, actually burn the gas by the you know, by whoever the, the the buyers are of the gas they drill. Also, carbon capture and storage is notoriously uh, uh, poorly done. Uh, has they spent companies have spent 20, 30 years looking into this. It still hasn't reached scale. So really, he's kind of saying this is a way of saying please allow us to drill more fossil gas and create more emissions so that we can have more money to eventually do something in the future, maybe. So that's what I call, I think we're calling it virtue signaling, you call it greenwashing, you could just call it, you know, a complete ruse. But it's not something that should be included, even if uh, a chief executive, especially if a chief executive is really pitching it. I mean, I like that. I'm glad there are some criteria that excludes it, but I know there, there's all these different definitions of what is and is not, you know, green. Um, yeah, ex exactly. Just, if we can, if we can go back to the automobile thing, I mean, like, yeah, like the easiest thing to do is if you want to call yourself, you know, environmentally friendly and 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 dab green on your face, as it were, um, is to buy an EV company. Yeah, but I mean, like the uh, it looks like the investment in the grids. Be, I mean, these EVs are only going to be as green as as the power grids that charge the batteries, right? Um, well, I mean, to an if extent, you're, if you're charging the batteries, if you're charging the batteries with a bunch of coal power. Yeah, um, although I, then you've I mean, just they're, relocated they're, they're, the emissions. Yes, yes. Although I think they still end up being clean. There are various studies done. I think neither of us probably mm. has read all of them. <laughs> in fact, many of them. Yeah. In fact, a small minority of them. Um, but I think in general, yes, you want the grid to be clean. Obviously, you want the grid to be cleaner. The cleaner the grid, the cleaner uh, the electric vehicle. It still makes sense to have electric vehicles, even if you're still relying. As this country I sit in, Australia, is still heavily reliant on coal uh, fired power stations at the moment for about 60% of its electricity, I think. So yeah, hardly ideal, but you know, there are also other uh, benefits to having um, electric vehicles, even if they are powered by uh, dirtier grids, you know, just localized. They, go, they start up faster, right? They've got better acceleration. So that's, that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a nice hop. Okay, okay, well, let's, 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 let's go. Sorry to drag you off. I mean, I mean we, we should be talking about the upside of this. Um, you see room for some positive deals that would actually be environmentally useful. Um, can yeah, you walk us that, through some of, some of the things you think would make sense? Yeah, I think first is, is just deal with the, 
the, the, the risk offset deals, which should count as climate driven deals. So they're not necessarily dealing with emissions and there are sort of a couple of types of different deals there. So the main one I looked at was BHP selling its oil and gas unit to Woodside, a, 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 another Australian oil and gas company. And OK, it doesn't deal with the emissions, but for BHP and its shareholders, it, it, it greens, it makes the, the company look greener. So is that a climate driven M&A deal? Yes, probably, because um, as the chief executive, Mike Henry is probably thinking the fewer fossil fuel emissions I have as a miner, the more I can go out and claim I'm greener, the more I can put the emphasis on the, the green economy, you know, going out and finding those uh, minerals and materials that are needed in electric vehicles and cell phones and everything else that will make life a bit more green. Um, but you know, you're not really dealing with the emissions. The ones that right. do are the ones, the really interesting ones that haven't really been done yet. You've seen a few of them. Right, so one of them uh, I mentioned was a relatively small one, a $1 billion deal by the, the, the data company Autodesk at the beginning of the year. And it bought, uh, beginning of 2021, just to be clear, it bought Innovise, which does a lot of work in digital water. So you know, how, how to make sure that the water you're using is, is moved properly, is treated properly, is treated uh, and, uh, and, and dealt with in a more environmentally uh, proper way. And that, that's the kind of thing I think that companies are going to be going after increasingly. Uh, another one, I think, if you look at the, the, um, the financial services sector, 450 firms have just in the past few months committed to uh, the uh, global uh, financing, the way of uh, the, the global financial network for greening the economy, basically, GFANS as it's called, um, uh, set up by Mark Carney, the former Bank of England governor. Um, and there are 450 firms in there. Most of them, uh, yeah, a lot of them are pretty big firms. They're insurers, asset managers, banks, and they won't have all the stuff they need to go out and advise their clients, right? Whether it's you know, shipping companies, whether it's um, you know, whether it's the, the BHPs of this world, you know, they're not going to have all the data and information they need to properly advise these companies on how to do a, a better job of going green. So they're going to go out and probably buy data companies. They may just go out and, and hire people, of course, but they'll probably start looking at how to hire data companies or buy data companies. Uh, and a good example was Moody's, which went out and, and bought a data company earlier this year as well, which will help it to, uh, to sort of increase its ability to advise its clients on what makes for a good energy transition. And you know, there's a lot of opportunity there, obviously. There's a lot of loans out there, a lot of companies that have got to think about how to raise capital in a way that's going to appeal to shareholders and bondholders who want to see more work being done uh, on, um, on reducing emissions and showing that they are better at dealing with climate change. So, you know, there's a huge amount that can be done where you, know, you can put your hand on your heart and say, we've just done a deal, we've just bought a company which actually helps us reduce emissions and isn't that great? And yes, there'll be virtue signaling yeah, in, in that. And yes, you know, do you really want to trust banks in everything they say? Well, everything should be taken with a grain of salt. But I think those are the kind of deals that will make climate-driven MA so much more interesting and so much more than being just about avoiding risk or addressing risk. It you know, addresses opportunity and actually have a drive the transition forward. So so if I can help put you down, do you expect next year to be a new a new record? I uh, well, if we sort out what should go in, yes. Um, although I think, <laughs> as I said at the beginning, I think I think the 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 trend is a good one. I think there will be more deals next year. I think obviously, first of all, as I said, you got you got you know, these four hundred and fifty financial firms that have signed on to various uh, to, to 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 various things. So have a lot of other companies and countries uh, at the uh, COP twenty six in Glasgow last month. So there's a lot of promises out there for things that need to be done, and at some point. They've got to start acting and showing that they're getting somewhere. 
And, you know, whether it's good or bad, and you know, my, my word, we know how bad M&A deals can be done and how, how badly integrating, how bad some companies are, and many companies are, integrating the deals that they buy and the deals they do. Um, nonetheless, I think a lot of companies will think we should go out and buy the things we don't have. It will be quicker than building it ourselves, or you know, we'll be able to find the right people if we just buy that firm, almost like a, an acquihire, as they call it, where you go out and buy a company, a small company, just to get the, the 10 good people inside it. So yes, I think right, or, or alternatively, like you said, just kind of buying it as a sort of carbon offset, like we're a coal company, but we're going to buy something that's positive and like that will balance us out. Yeah, um, I think I think there should, there it sounds, should it sounds be... like smart for for the green cred, but like obviously, as you yeah, pointed out, yeah, I... for actual business integration, you you just kind of bought something. Yeah, <laughs> are you, you got, actually you going still, to, to, still... to use it to create synergies, or are you just using it to kind of like um, good, di yeah, dilute you your, make... dilute your your net corporate emissions? I think that's all the time we got. But um, look, Anthony, I'll, I'll I'll follow this with interest next year. Uh, and thanks for for talking with me. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for chatting, and uh, happy new year. Happy new year, man. Take care. Hi, I'm Ed Cropley, uh, an editor with Reuters Breaking Views in the UK, and I'm here today with Amy Donnellan, our pharmaceutical and drugs correspondent, who's going to talk about big pharma getting into big data. Now, Amy, this, this is one thing you're looking ahead to next year, and there, there could be some quite interesting developments between drug companies and artificial intelligence. Basically, the, I, I guess the way to think about this is the big drug companies, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, all the ones that you've seen kind of in the vaccine race, they're all spending combined about $160 billion a year on research and development. So trying to find new cancer treatments, neurological disorders, etc. So it's a vast amount of money. And what they're trying to do is be a bit more targeted and a bit more selective in how they spend that money and how, you know, basically the, ben the benefits of artificial intelligence might help them have more successful drug trials. So we've already seen examples of, of how this might work. So some of the, the big companies that are in this artificial intelligence area, Accentia, Relay Therapeutics, uh, Recursion Pharmaceuticals, so they're all, many of them are listed over in New York. And essentially what we've already seen is this UK-based benevolent AI realized that running patients' medical history and previous trial results through their algorithms, that they actually found that an arthritis treatment could help to treat COVID-19. So we've already seen it kind of basically how it can work. But that's actually kind of obviously looking at sort of existing drugs. You can also actually help to find new drugs with artificial intelligence. And that's the kind of the big hope. So, so how does that work then? Uh, that a you know a, a supposedly intelligent algorithm trawling through vast amounts of data can unearth a new drug. That that's that seems a bit odd to me. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, basically, if you think about a, a really hot area in pharma now called basically gene therapy. So this is where you kind of tinker with patients' DNA and you can hopefully prevent diseases by fixing a flaw in somebody's DNA. So this works if you think about maybe like somebody who might be predisposed to getting breast cancer, that you could actually fix it before the person ever became ill. So if you were able to use AI in this way, you might be able to run millions of potential patients' genetic codes and their medical history. And then an artificial intelligence program could identify who's most likely to benefit from treatment. So you have a much more efficient drug trial then because you have the right people in the drug trial for how it might work. So, so that's, obviously, that, that's obviously going to create some, some massive winners. Obviously, from the public health point of view, there's a huge saving. And, and for all the people who, in your example, 
are prevented from getting you know, breast cancer and the trauma and the surgery that often goes goes in, in, in association with that. But at the same time, there might also be some losers, no, because the, the companies that make existing treatments may find they're completely overtaken. I mean, I guess to an extent, but I think, I mean, what I think if you were, if you were to think about a pharmaceutical company, what they would, how they would be looking at this is it's all about like time is money for them. So they need to get a drug to market as fast as possible before it goes off patent. So they have a window of about typically about 10 years. So it takes them about 10 years to get the drug ready to go onto the market. And then they have another 10 years before it expires. But if you think about if artificial intelligence were able to help that process along, and the executives that I've spoken to have said they think that it could actually speed things up by about two years, that's an extra two years of revenue that they can benefit from. So, I mean, it's it's not so much that like biotechs that aren't involved in this could kind of lose out. Almost every single pharmaceutical company, by the way, the big pharma companies are all partnered already with one of these with one of these AI companies. But what I'm saying is I think they're going to have to bring them in house to benefit from the kind of all of the data that these firms have, because they only get by partnering with them, they only get little slabs of it. So they want to benefit in the in the in the entire way, basically. And and who I mean, you've mentioned the big the big firms, you know, the Glaxo's, AstraZeneca's, um, Pfizer, and Merck. Who who sort of led this charge, and who's got their nose in front? Do you reckon? I mean, I'd say I think they they I mean I would say they are all kind of I mean GSK is probably doing the most with kind of gene therapy. They have a they have partnered with one of the AI companies. I mean Pfizer was one of the first to be in a partnership with IBM Watson. They're developing cancer treatments. So I wouldn't say that anyone is is necessarily ahead, but I suppose it's who is the best, who, which I, I think what we're going to find out is which is the best AI company, who can do this the best. And I think it's yet to be seen which one, which is why you're kind of seeing everybody kind of try and partner up with with the with whichever one they think is the best. Right. And these AI companies, are, are they um, just sort of very small number of highly intelligent people um, developing these computer programs or or what, what do they look like and how much are they valued? So I'd say the whole lot of them together were valued at about 16 billion. So that's what I, as I said, they were, many of them have listed, Benevolent AI just listed through a SPAC very recently. And they're, they are scientists, they're, they're scientists that, that have basically devised these algorithms that then go on to help target these treatments and find, as I said, existing treatments that help to um, treat existing diseases. So they are, they're, they're mainly scientists that are running these companies, kind of big scientists in from what you would see from Oxford and, and all of the kind of big universities. Fascinating stuff, Amy. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to have a good news story at the end of a pretty difficult year all round on the medical front. Look forward to seeing whether your predictions come true. Thank you. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Thomas Shum, in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get high-quality podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingnews.com. Happy New Year.